Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. I'm your host Jibraj and on this podcast I speak with founders, investors and domain experts from the Indian Valley trying to understand the art of building a legendary company. In this episode I speak with Gaurav Sharma, founder and CEO of SaaS Labs. SaaS Labs is one of the most fascinating SaaS companies from India, building and scaling multiple innovative products. serving the entire suit of requirements for sales agents and support professionals gaurav founded saas labs with the vision to build multiple innovative products and scale them bit by bit what started off with just call in a profitable bootstrap manner is now a suite of more than 5 full-fledged products doing multi-million dollars in arr venture backed by some of the greatest investors in the ecosystem SaaS Labs seems to have cracked the SaaS playbook and they are building on top of it in a manner which is beyond exceptional. I chat with Gaurav to understand how they make it possible. Through one of the most practical conversations I've had on the show, we uncover Gaurav's building DNA, how SaaS Labs curates an organizational structure that promotes the multi-product unique model, the mindset shift of being a bootstrap founder vis-a-vis a venture-funded founder, and most importantly, we deco the sas playbook this is one of the most tactically phenomenal episodes i've had on the show and i am certain all of you listening shall agree but before we get started here is a quick word about our sponsor this episode of the indian silicon valley podcast is presented by stride ventures which is one of india's leading venture debt funds becoming synonymous with innovative startup financing in india stride ventures provides comprehensive solutions going beyond venture debt to cater to distinctive challenges faced by high growth and inherently strong businesses backed by leading institutions. The fund has a portfolio of over 60 plus diversified companies having deployed more than 1500 crore rupees to date. In just over 2 years, Stride Ventures has emerged as the preferred venture debt lender in the Indian ecosystem. To know more about this phenomenal fund, visit strideventures.in that is spelled as s t r i d e v e n t u r e s . i n and with that let's dive in to the 110th episode of the indian silicon valley podcast with gorov of sas labs thank you so much gorov for joining me incredibly delighted to be hosting you today thanks for having me man Awesome. I think the very exciting part about your journey Gaurav is how you've been able to adapt and manifest this building DNA, the entrepreneurial DNA. Uh, you personify it in on level side. Right? And before we go on to how you've gone about building SaaS Labs, I would love to figure out what you think uh, this building DNA entails from a young student who's been coding since 7th 8th grade to a founder and CEO of multiple companies, multiple products in the SaaS space. It's it's been a great journey. So if you can maybe lay it down for us, what do you consider the entrepreneur a real dna to be how do you manifest it what are the core principles stuff like that i think that'll be a great conversation starter sure i think just giving a quick background on like why it happened and what was the main trigger for me to start something in the first place when i was like very small so my dad was in air force and uh, and after that he got, got into education so i got access to computer and uh, internet very early on while i was like going through internet and learning how internet works and what not so i stumbled upon the story of sabir vatia selling hotmail uh they were like back 2020 early 2000 i guess he sold this company for 400 million dollars and i was as a kid i was like 
man, I think that sounds like a big amount. Uh, and how did you do that? So I did some research. I figured out that he built something on the internet, like something called email. He sold that to a big company and he made this shit, a lot of money. So that sort of was a first trigger for me to, you know, so just to figure out what, what internet is and what, what programming, uh, how to build such products. So I got into programming very early on because of that. And uh, I just wanted to repeat the same story. So from the very sort of early stay, early sort of age, I started writing code, building products, starting making some uh, money here and there. So, so that made me get started with both this thing. And with in last 14, 15 years of doing this thing, I've been just building products now. Yeah, no, I think that's lovely. I, I mean, started off with the spark, but in your years of building, right, is there a common thread that you feel keeps this hunger going, right? I'm sure that the financial motive, which was, you know, the early spark would have died once you once you got early success, right? But what is it that keeps it going, right? I remember in one of your interviews, you mentioned that you continue nowadays as well when you get time in the weekends, right? Uh, talk to us about some of those softer aspects, perhaps. No, I think, yeah, I think that whole uh, kick that you get out of building something and someone using that from anywhere on the world, from the world, I, I think that's the biggest kick that you get, right? I mean, as in uh, the group, the best part of this whole tech or internet or, or product building uh, is that uh, things go live immediately and then someone is using that immediately. So that, uh, you know, from from building something to getting a feedback on top of it in that instant, I think that's that's very addictive. People using your, you looking at on your Google Analytics screen that, okay, I have like 80 people using on this thing that I've built on the weekend and they send you email or whatever. I, I think I think that's the biggest addictive part of the whole game here. I think this whole money part and everything was an early, early age thing. But now that what keeps me going is that addiction to build something which people will use and will email you that, hey, what an amazing stuff you've built. Or hey, can we build some build something more on top of it? I think that incremental improvement of your product and people giving you feedback from no matter where they are, I think that's that's insanely powerful. Absolutely, no. I think that summarizes uh, what entrepreneurs feel when building products as well. And I think that's a great segue to understanding more about SaaS Labs, right? I think it'll be great if we can take a trip down memory lane, understand more about you know what was the thesis behind calling it SaaS Labs, you also bootstrapped it at the start, right? A lot of people target a very specific problem statement, want to go deep, but you were of the opinion that you'll build multiple products and we can now see your vision come to life. But what was it on day one like, right? Like what gave birth to SaaS Labs? If you can take us through that, I think that'll be wonderful. Sure. I mean, uh, for that, we'll just go a bit back in the history there. Uh, so when I moved to US for the first time after selling my first business, there are two, three things that I sort of learned in my that experience of moving to US. I think that, that happened 2011. So one one was a funny one, which was like, okay, I, I figured out that people pay for software, which is like, which was unheard of in India. Like, you know, I, I studied in a, a government sort of tech college and IT Warangal where you had this DC++ where you can just download anything for free of cost. And then you land in US and you see people paying for Microsoft and like that's very simple thing, right? But that that was a great learning for me that, okay, I, I can write software and what people can pay for that, that's amazing. And second was, uh, which was the most strongest sort of learning was that uh, any small business can make your, any, any software can make your small business look way better than the other business which is not using any software. So, and we, and we never saw any business in India using any software for their, any of the functions, like everyone was, everything was manual you throw people at problems basically. But in US, I figured out that people are hiring less, but rather using a lot of software to automate a lot of stuff. But that, with that, they're getting giving better quality support or uh, they're moving their operations faster. So that was a very strong learning for me that, okay, I think small businesses should use software. And the third learning was that 
despite the fact that software are so useful for small businesses, most of the software companies were targeting enterprise businesses. So I could see that all the small businesses are so underloved, so underserved, that there was an opportunity there that, hey, why don't why don't we build something where we can build the, the same quality, the same solid functionalities what enterprises have, but provide them to the small businesses. And there's, there are millions and millions of small businesses around the world and new getting formed every day. So when I moved back to India to 2015, the idea was there were like two things. One was like, hey, I'm so after selling my first business, I built another business in US that also got acquired by New York Times. And that's why I moved back to India. So the idea was like, okay, whatever do I think I do next, I'll make sure that I don't sell it. And I'll make sure that I'll run it for 30, 40 years. I'll retire from it. I'll take it public. So this is the, the thing that I'm going to build. So how to figure out that big idea? Because you now need a big idea which can run for 30 years. So I started looking at like what makes big SaaS companies successful. Like why they're like $100 billion SaaS companies, the $50 billion SaaS companies. I looked at Adobe. I looked at Lassian or even Salesforce for that matter. Like all these big companies are like champions of some job profiles. For example, Adobe is a champion of design job profile or at last in a champion of product management. So I thought that, okay, I think if I have to build something very sort of 30, 40 years sort of player more than that, I need to focus or become a champion of some job profile. So that's where the idea came that, hey, okay, we'll create a, something. We will become the champion of sales and support people. And uh, we'll obviously focus on SMBs. So this is how the idea came together, that single platform for SMBs, sales and support teams, and we'll build multiple products uh, there. So that was the idea. We have to build this for next 30 years. So I really need big idea. And this is the big idea that we're working on. Awesome. No, that's lovely. I think looking at the model you've built out, right? Like a lot of these vertical products that can help sales folks and support folks. I think it's it's just wonderful. And looking at the journey, I think it's fascinating where your thought process was. I have a bunch of questions as to how you've done this, but just to take a leap forward, I uh, would love to know as a, you know, 101, because I saw seven products on your website. There is, of course, a lot going on. Just Call is uh, super famous now, but if you can give us a preview of all that is happening right now, I think that'll be great context before we dive deeper into maybe some of the tactical things that you did over time. Sure. So, I mean, we are very uh, strong on the R&D part. We keep on building and tweaking things here and there, keep building uh, new stuff in the side just to make sure that our pipeline for new features, new product is always live. It, just, it doesn't matter that we're launching something all the time. So, but at the end of the day, we have like five main products today. Three three were sort of built in-house and two were sort of acquired recently, uh, two European companies that we acquired. So just call definitely is the main main product is some there's the hero product for us which is doing the maximum of the revenue for us and then we have healthwise which is kind of uh, close to a million dollar ARR now and then we recently launched something called dialworks which is a kind of uh, uber for sales training on demand sales training that we have and then we acquired two companies in one in poland and one in france one is called callpage another one is called uh, atolia so all of these products come somewhere in the in the whole workflow of yours as a salesperson as a support person so, so if you're using just call, I can always sell you dialogues as a training for your salespeople. I can always sell you call page to generate more leads. So we make sure that uh, we make sure that the ICP remains the same for all our products so that the cross selling and the upselling becomes easier for us. And we don't have to spend our dollar marketing dollars again and again to acquire the same customers. So that's the kind of thesis there. So five products uh, right now. 
got it very fascinating i think a super interesting business model uh, but i think what's the more interesting part is you know how do you design an organization that facilitates these vertical product sites so if you had to give us a preview of okay this is how sas labs is designed internally which can maybe you know help us hold vertical functions vertical products while having an horizontal layer I would love to hear your ideas there how do you design such a cross functional cross product led organization i think that'll be really helpful sure i mean it's, a, it's definitely a learning process for me as well i mean we were like uh, 70 people till i think in last i mean 18 in our last 18 months we have added like uh, 150 people or so so the org is growing really fast so things are changing org structure is also changing but but fundamentally we have like two kind of teams one is like a foundation business which is like generating the cash the everything is sorted you know everything is sorted and then we have something like accelerator sort of thing where the the new products sort of come in so what we do is for any new product what we do is so i have a uh, really awesome ceo's office uh, where we have people from uh, sort of different backgrounds mostly from ib sort of in, or or consulting sort of background so so these are like program managers so someone from program manager will be sort of running the the show at the new product and then we'll be will be having a small pod of engineers pms you know designers running those uh, small companies so these are very lean so all the small products we are running in a way the way we started just call as our first product in a bootstrap manner so we make sure that dna sort of remains the same whenever we're launching something new so so that's how we make do the structuring uh, internally got it got it no that's perfect but uh, you you mentioned you know that the playbook right i i guess you perhaps have the most insights on launching microsas and scaling it right if you had to give us like a precursor that okay these are the components that go into uh, launching a successful product from you know let's say pre r&d to understanding the pain point to launch to scale right if you can give a zero to one journey of some of your products maybe give us some examples or your learnings from a high level as to okay this is what makes a, a product a, a very successful from research to launch to release i think that'll be really really good yeah i think uh, so whenever you're starting something i mean the the main thing for me is beat building something or investing in something the the very important thing is that you should have a a big market which is also growing i don't want a big market which is stagnant or sort of not growing right so uh, so i think we start with that uh, that it should be a growing market and it should be growing and the importance of that is that if the market is growing and it's big you don't have to worry about competition in your early days for example let's say just call falls under this uh, whole contact center space and giving uh, going with different research reports the market is like 10 billion dollars which is growing at about 20 uh, 13 to 15% year on year so that's like 1.3 1.5 billion dollars of new revenue coming in the market every year right so i just need a small portion of that whole new dollar which is coming into market i don't have to displace anyone to build a 100 million dollar business here right so so that gives me this confidence of not worrying much about your competition just focus on your customers and you know start keep on building and keep on selling uh, so so if that part is taken care of the second step comes into like uh, the distribution So whenever you building something or launching something you should always have your distribution figured out how will i distribute my product in the early days itself i can't hire sales people and tell them to figure out how to sell this that's not going to work so in case of just call we figured out that the distribution for us was because we were bootstrap we didn't have any money to even run ads so we started integrating with other business tools and started publishing ourselves on their marketplaces so it was basically as simple as uh, what you call like riding the tide so there was a tide we just you know top of the tide basically and that sort of gave us this distribution so 
we integrated with all the business tools in the market, HubSpot, DriveDrive, Intercom, everything. And they all are like growing businesses. They all have their own 100,000 plus users. So we immediately got visibility to all those customers which are using HubSpot, Fiverr, and everything. So that was, got us the early customers. And the third thing is spend more time on your pricing and packaging. 99.9% SaaS, I can say with confidence that they spend maximum 30 minutes on their pricing. They spend this 30 minutes when they're building the website and they have to put some pricing plans there, right? After that, no one gives any sort of thoughts to the pricing, how, it, how it's going to work. So it's really important to add uh, some sort of expansion built into your pricing but that's really important to fight churn to fight or and to grow automatically through expansion so i think these are some of the three four things that uh, i normally uh, take care of or advise other people about super important insights market distribution and pricing that's what i'm hearing if we can maybe let's spend some more time on the distribution piece right that's something that a lot of indian founders in saas when building global products try to figure out right a lot of chatter around gtm and us markets uh, what are some of your learnings apart from the partnerships is a great hack, of course. If you can go deeper into that uh, distribution piece, I think that'll be very, very helpful for young builders. Sure. Uh, so, so obviously, if you have figured out your first distribution, it can be, can be, it can be integrations, it can be partnerships, it can be affiliate partners, affiliate uh, resellers, it can be SEO. In not, not most of the companies are not focusing on SEO at all because when we launched Healthwise, Healthwise, uh, we we focused only on SEO. And we reached, I think, first $200,000 ARR through SEO only, through organic search, people landing on our website and just uh, signing up and paying us. So these can be like so five, six ways of figuring out our distributions. It can be, it can also be paid also. So you can also have a paid distribution. If you, if you're, if there's not much competition in the, in the niche that you are targeting, that can also work well for you. For example, let's say you are, you are building something for a specific industry. In that case, you can, you can try Obviously, obviously, the very specific industry integrations you can try partnering with associations in those uh, sort of, uh, for example, if you're doing something with healthcare, you can always go to a lot of associations out there in US or whatever country you're targeting, go there, give them discount or whatever, figure out hustle to get your distribution done through the association itself. Third is figure out consultancy companies in that domain where they are doing some sort of software installation, SIs, we call it. Partner with them, give them 20%, 15% cut on every sale. Tell them that, hey, you can charge $5,000 for installing your product in their client's uh, business. So partner with them. Fourth is you can try with a very small budget, run five, six different ad copies with different pitches to figure out what pitch is working best. The simple hack is you run five, six ads, see where the CTR is on the highest, where the click-through ratio is highest, and start using those pitches in your demo calls. Right? For example, in our case, Just Calls case, Will cloud phone system as a pitch will work or will productivity phone system for salespeople will work? You know, so what, what's going to work in your pitch is also important because I've seen a lot of Indian entrepreneurs specifically. We don't focus on product marketing at all in early days. We don't focus on positioning at all in early days. We don't work on our uh, pitch in the early days. Uh, we have to speak the language of our customers. For example, in demos, you can't talk about cricket or football. You have to talk about baseball and American football right so small things so i think these are some of the things i, I think you can you can try and hustle and figure out which which you know channel is working well for you super i think um, that's very tactical and very minute in nature love the smaller hacks there um going forward i think uh, this is a, a bit uh, you know food for thought but how does somebody like you in a position where you have to manage multiple products 
take the decision between going, you know, wide in terms of depth versus breadth, right? Like when do you decide you want to launch something new? Uh, do you hold it off because, you know, something is already working and you want to go deep into markets because you're constantly tussling between expansion as well as new product innovation, right? If you can maybe help us understand the design principle in your hand for that, I think that'll be very exciting to know. Sure. I mean, to start with, I mean, it, it starts with my favorite rule of 80-20, right? You don't have to, so if you're building something new, you don't have, you don't have to build 100% features that your competitors are offering. And at the end of the day, 20, customers use only 20% of the features. So you just build those features and start with that. And let customers and your PMs uh, help you incrementally improve your product. Coming to the focus part, it's really important to make sure that your accelerator or your R&D is separate from your foundation or your daily work. Because if you start mingling those two together, then the focus will be a problem. But if they these two are working in different silos, I think focus will not be a problem. Because in let's say, for example, Just Call, which is doing tens of millions of dollars in ARR right now. So Just Call has its own proper team working day and night, and they have the set KPIs and goals in, in place. Uh, and we are fighting there really well with our competition. We are going really, really deep into it. In case of, let's say, HelpWise, now that HelpWise has figured out its PMF and it's ready to scale, now we will give it more resources and we'll just uh, scale it and we'll take up the fight and we'll go deep into it. Third, Dialworks, our new product. Uh, it is still, it's like, I think one month old or so, hardly about 100K era right now. It's still early, sort of before PMF stage. So we're taking it easy. We are talking to a lot of customers. We are asking them what, what you need, you know, just figuring it out. So that's where we're just doing. So we launched it with only 20% of the features. The rest features, our customers will help us build. On the org level, it's really important to keep things separate from what's working and what's experimental. Uh, otherwise, uh, it's not going to work. God, it's super helpful. I think it gives an insight to compartmentalizing and focus. I think that's what I'm hearing and that's the takeaway. I think going to another dimension of this, right? Like, so the other thing is you've, of course, managed a team which has grown incredibly in the last 18 months, as you were uh, mentioning. What are your learnings as a CEO to understand and build cross-border teams, especially for, you know, an emerging exponential growth sort of a company, right? Where scale is of utmost importance. You're growing at crazy speeds. So how do you maintain the talent density and not break culture? Uh, what are your learnings around uh, talent building? I uh, would love to know that, Gaurav. Yeah, I mean, it's been a learning journey for me as well. Uh, I read a lot of books because I the last company I sold was, uh, I think, 40 people team. Now we are almost 300 people team, almost touching 300 now with 40 people in Europe. The biggest hack or the, the thing that you have to do as a leader, two things. One is over-communication. The why is in the house. You should always over-communicate that. Like why are you taking certain decision? Why are you doing something? I think you should over-communicate over that. So we make sure to over-communicate anything that you're doing. We over-communicate our, our values and the culture in all our town hall meetings, in all our senior leadership meetings. We push our leaders to always over-communicate on their end. The second thing is to in the work from home situation where you have people across the world in 60 cities, it's really important to bind people together and, and stories bind people together so well. So we have this culture of storytelling. So every team has different stories from the past and, and recent past or whatever. So I think if, if everyone has heard the same story, I mean, they will bind on that. So, right? so that whole storytelling, how X person did some X win in the sales team, right? So you, you tell that story. Uh, so people start, start connecting with with the whole whole team there so so i think that storytelling sort of works really well and third is uh, it's a part of our culture that uh, we make sure that mutual respect helpfulness and all these 
things are a part of the culture and they're non-negotiable. So we just practice that. And it should come from the leader itself, right? So you have to practice what you're saying. It's on me, it's on the leadership to make sure that people feel respected no matter where they come from. So I think these are some of the things that we do. I mean, it's a kind of natural, normal, some of the normal human things that you have to do. Got it. No, I think that makes absolute sense. And uh, I love the fact that, you know, you're being tactical in saying that communication, storytelling can be very, very important factors, especially as uh, decentralized teams work, right? Uh, the other thing is, of course, you know, since you've hired global talent and, you know, you built out teams in the US across the world now, how do you ensure that you're looking for, you know, a common DNA yet embracing everybody's individuality, right? What are you looking for in people when hiring? on a very granular level, would love to know that because people can differ from geography to geography. How do you maintain that uh, balance? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a tough thing. We have made some wrong choices earlier. I mean, that that's fine. I think a couple of things, like one is, uh, one is uh, we obviously look for depth in general. Like if you're doing something, then there should be depth in whatever you work you've done because if you hire you and you bring you in the team, if any of you are like all fluff, then people are going to question us and it will play really bad with the culture. So I think depth is, that's on the skill side. Second is like, we normally discuss our, uh, our values during the interview process. And firstly, we try to get their values first and then we sort of do a match on the values that we have. For example, we have this, val- this, this work sort of principle where we have this thing called uh, bias for action. So we test people on bias for action. We figure out like, how do you do something in the XYZ condition? And if the bias for action is coming out of that conversation, that's a check for us. Then we talk about, let's say, customer obsession. Is the candidate on the other side, no matter which field, no, no matter which domain or, or team from a role, if the person is not talking about customer in some of the conversations, we try to make the person talk about customer. If he or she is talking about that customer obsession, I think that's, again, a check. So they're like, they're like, eight or nine points in our sort of uh, doc culture doc and we try to get maximum checks possible there i think that's the best way uh to to do that for sure i can i can only imagine uh you know documenting that and then making sure it gets fulfilled but of course you know that seems to be a ironclad way or some sort of filter for sure but wonderful i think this is super helpful on another level right curious to know what the decision for bootstrapping the company early on was and how you decided to go the venture way right if you can maybe talk to us about the change in thought process and what was the difference in building a bootstrap org vis-a-vis building a scalable venture back org now sure uh definitely interesting times there so so we were like a uh, very profitable bootstrap company i think we were at about 5 6 million arr when we raised our series a so there were like few triggers for us one one was like we started getting a lot of acquisition offers and uh, and they were like really good offers i would have personally made a lot of tons of uh, millions there but uh, but i had already started this company with saying that i'm not going to sell it so i really didn't want to sell it so so one was that like so what's the best way to marry to your business? You raise money, basically. But the other two main triggers were like, first was that there was a risk because we were making so much profits and I was a 100% owner of it. I felt that there'll be a risk of being becoming very complacent in coming sort of years. Let's say if we touch 10 million, so we were doing 50% net profits, basically. So on 5 million, we were making like 2.5 million as profit and I was a 100% owner, right? So staying in Delhi, Noida, whatever, and you're making this much uh, money. I mean, it's very obvious to get complacent, right? So I had this risk of becoming complacent. So at 10 million, it'll make 5 million. So, you know, so it's it's very easy to get complacent there. So I think that was a, one big risk and that would have hindered 
sort of my plans on making a really big company and taking it public or whatever. And the third was the whole realization of that a lot of things I don't know, I don't know. So if I have to build a $100 million, $200 million AR company, I will need help. So it's, it's better you get the help right now when the time is right instead of uh, sort of taking help later on. Uh, so these are a few, few reasons why um, we decided that, okay, I think it's a good time that we should uh, raise money because also it would have been a problem for us to hire people. After $5 million, you need some different set of skills. So you need people to, to join you. So, so yeah, all four or five reasons sort of combined together and we sort of raised capital. There was obviously very strong interest coming in. So there was no problem as such in raising capital, both Series A and Series B. Coming to life after fundraise, right? A couple of things. One was, uh, it was uh, it took me like a couple of quarters to learn how to spend money. You know, so in a couple of our board meetings, they used to tell us that, hey, why are you still profitable? Or, hey, what's the... And that's a good good push, actually. You know, I mean, so when we talk about profitability or not profitability, it's all about like investing in your growth. Because because we were, so even if we invest in our growth, we are not like a zero margin company or, you know, we, we had a very strong economics, uh, you know, economics. So it, it made all the sense, like, why should you make profit? You keep on investing that and moving your mindset from that, thinking that, hey, we should make some profits and there should be money in the bank or whatever to, to becoming this growth mindset person. Uh, so that was the switch that took me about two quarters to to learn how to how to think like that because coming from a middle class family family and then sort of becoming a bootstrap founder to this sort of switch it's a it's a big switch so after two quarters uh, it, it took me two quarters and then then sort of became like uh, kind of obvious and normal it's been definitely helpful in terms of hiring some great people we now have a great sort of talent pool from the leadership to to mid level and even down there so it's been going pretty well till date. The business is growing, so no problems yet. So, yeah. Yeah, very interesting learnings there. I think uh, how the journey has evolved, how you took the conscious call of, you know, seeing this through and building an institution, right? And, you know, seeing it through to IPO and hopefully that's on the cards a couple of years in. And then understanding what the venture back mindset is vis-a-vis the bootstrap mindset. Just double clicking on this, right? So considering that there was so much investor interest, what were your, you know, let's say variables to consider when getting a partner on board, right? When deciding which fund to go with or things like that or what were you thinking and what's worked in that in that part of life right how do you basically not recommend but what is your general rule to understand more about investors maybe a lot of a lot of young founders face that conundrum right which fund to go for and things like that so we'd love to know there sure uh, so in series a that was our first round so i was always optimizing for the partner coming on board and by that i mean obviously i i was uh, not that so it was it was basically a big shift for me, right? So bootstrap to the funding thing, and you have heard some really bad stories about what happened to VC funded companies and all that. So obviously that fear was always there. So I was just optimizing for a good partner who is with whom I had this chemistry matching, right? So I I'm more comfortable talking to this person. So I was just optimizing for for the the human part there, nothing else, because otherwise it's all numbers. I mean numbers everyone can match, you know. So what people can't match is the the human connection, the chemistry part. Uh, so one was that optimization. Second was uh, I was optimizing for uh, a partner in in US because we have majority of customers coming from US. So someone who has presence in US, uh, we sort of optimized for that. So we got uh, base ten in US and uh, eight roads in in India in our series A. And eight roads uh, has been super helpful for our hiring or uh, just helping me make my business more sort of data driven. 
where whereas base then has been like giving me all the what's happening in us just giving me that exposure to how to build big businesses in us so so that exposure is super helpful in in terms of series b funding because some first time entrepreneur must be listening to this as well i optimized for uh, again the fund and the right fund for that stage over valuations we had valuations almost like more than 50 60 million 100 million dollars higher valuation which we said no to just to optimize for the right partner right human and right stage for that fund to be in our company you know so you really have to figure out like whatever fund you're getting on board uh, are they the right stage fit for you you really can't get a a pe firm to invest in your seed round right there'll be no help at all so you have to figure out like what help i need from the investor and then go with that part for example in our series b we wanted help with building our leadership team in india and get some good connections with the uh, you know executives around the world so so that was a trigger point for us to go ahead with sequoia uh, in our series b got it super i think uh, throughout this conversation i've loved how tactical you've been right like i think these are very real insights and very practical ones so everybody listening in will really benefit from it i think as we bring this part of the conversation uh, to a close and move on to maybe concluding aspects i'd love to understand what the vision forward is right you've given us a precursor to what's happening how is it happening if you can maybe talk to us about maybe 18 24 months down the line right i mean from a broad basis how are you looking at this a saas super app sort of a approach right like when you're building this entire repository of product innovation or oh, what are the next uh, future looks like uh, i think that'll be exciting to hear just as admirers of the product sure uh, yeah a lot of things are coming 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 everyone's way some of our latest offerings around uh, sort of ai powered insights on top of the communications our sales people and support people are doing so so we'll be doubling down on that because that's been a hot selling tool on our end so that's something we'll be focusing on we'll we are looking at couple of acquisitions to complete in next uh, 12 months to 18 months we are looking at a lot of uh, companies we open to acquiring couple of companies across the sort of world so i think you will you will listen uh, hear about uh, some of the acquisition that that's going to happen from the the business size and uh, scale i think we continue to sort of uh, grow fast we'll be doubling hopefully next year as well we are we are almost uh, doubling this year as well so yeah i think in next 48 months we'll be like i don't know 4x bigger in in revenue size hopefully less bigger in employee size it's it's really important to be efficient on the dollar per employee number this is something i always talk about what is wrong with indian ecosystem right now that the whole dollar is to employee ratio is like totally messed up uh, so i think we'll we'll hopefully we'll manage and keep keep that in check a lot of innovation is coming in our products we are launching some amazing stuff which is all global international level so yeah our journey to become that the go to tech stack for sales and support people in smb mid market i think will be more more sort of forward in our journey to that absolutely and of course like all of us are cheering for it let's go deeper for a moment on that right dollar per employee basis right and if there are any other first principle thoughts that you have what do you mean by that how do you optimize for it why do you keep that mindset yeah i mean uh, so it came obviously from the the bootstrap uh, you know dna i always wanted to keep that uh, number in check like it's like it should be like for for me it was like 100k per employee sort of number i've seen a lot of saas companies or in general indian companies they hire a lot so that sort of means that our people are not productive enough or or we are not taking out the the maximum potential from them when i talk about that it doesn't mean that we have to make people slog it is just the quality 
the outcome of the out, of the of the work we are doing and if if someone is not doing the best work that's a problem and wrong thing for that person as well i mean you're not growing as a professional so that mentality of i i call it uh, channelizing your inner, inner steve jobs basically like like that intent to do quality work i think that's really important for companies to work really well i mean why some of the companies internationally or in us do so well they grow 5x 6x without even growing their headcount we should learn from those companies whenever we raise money it's important for all the entrepreneurs especially first time entrepreneurs they're raising seed money or series a you should not throw you know money at problems or people at problems so i think you have to sort of learn that and i i sort of uh, i because i never had the luxury of raising money so i always sort of thought that way that we should, we can we can't throw people and money at problems uh, so it's it's really important if that, if that starts happening i think uh, the startups will be in a very better position the entrepreneurs will be able to raise money at good numbers uh, they will have better unit economics the businesses will be high quality and more businesses will be able to go public and won't run out run out of money I mean, that's like e zero for me like you should have efficient business absolutely you know that's brilliant to share i think very very important to echo and a good framework to keep in mind especially as you build up the dna of the company especially if it's there from the early days so super to hear that awesome i think this has been great gorav moving on to a couple of final questions this is a series of similar questions that i ask most founders on the show which is related to their persona so i think the first one there is i mean we can see the scale at which sas labs has come in but across your multiple journeys of starting companies there is this common thread that if you can help us understand the evolution of your personal journey qualitatively how have you grown and things like that what does entrepreneurship do to a person is the essence of the answer so if you can give us any insights from a personal standpoint how have you grown through this phase of life i think that'll be really really great to hear totally i mean definitely a lot of growth especially in last 6 years of sas labs journey for sure so i started as an introvert engineer you know writing my own apps and just selling them online and now i've come out of that whole introvert part of it like i now talk a lot engage with a lot of people so i think that's something something really positive happened i've become a better people person again that sort of comes from that whole introvert part of it now i can sort of now that i'm running a team of 300 people it has been a journey again like how to figure out like i can tell you another example very tactical one again like let's say if you bootstrap a company for 4 years and then you raise money and then you start hiring people from outside for few months there will be this pre money and pre funding and post funding teams in your company so managing that change management uh, is super important so if you are running a company for without money and then you raising money and then you hiring people from outside make sure you are communicating really really well with people who have been there so that's these are some of those softer skills that i've learned over a period of time like how to how to figure that out third is obviously the empathy i always was a i always had this empathy part with me but i think i that muscle has grown bigger now you know so so and obviously more white hairs i guess yeah no i think uh... that's super fascinating especially as somebody who was a first time entrepreneur early on and then has built successful businesses but now is building an institution i see that journey coming along super well and i think that's super interesting for young founders to learn uh, i think on the second aspect would love to know how you continuously i think founders are a source of great adaptation of knowledge right they just consume knowledge like nobody else so if you had to tell us how you upskill as an individual right amidst the hustle bustle of running a company uh, at the scale at which uh, sas labs is i think that'll be very interesting to hear 
Yeah, I mean, I, I read a lot now. I, I've been reading a lot, but now, now I've started reading a lot because now the the kind of problems I'm facing are totally new for me. So I'm reading a lot of books. Uh, I make sure so so the best hack to read a lot of books is combine your steps target daily steps targets for your book reading. Right. So if you're to do ten thousand steps, take a book, start walking, make sure there's no one in front of you. But I think that's one hack that has worked really well for me. Uh, in the night, I can't sleep without reading something, and that sort of habit has sort of helped uh, helped me a lot so i i just make sure i'm reading all the time so if i'm going to airport i'll i'll read something just squeeze out some time here and there and once and it's really important to take notes of what you're reading because i you're going to forget what you're doing right so it's it's really important to take notes and once and you will start liking that and once that becomes a habit you start liking it it happens naturally to you uh, so one is that and uh, second is uh, i think it's very obvious ask questions i mean uh, if if you have a really good leader in your team who is great engineer who is great sales person whatever you there's no ego should not come in the way you should ask questions right i i keep on asking questions man my my ceo's office keep on throwing terms that i don't know and i just you know just ask them like shamelessly like okay tell me what does this mean so ask questions a lot and third is like now that we have investors take their help like if you want to talk to someone in the world uh, sequoias of the world will help you with connecting anyone so be open with that like if you want to take help ask for help yeah i think that's that's been my sort of way of learning it's been working pretty well super especially the last pointer i think um, echoing that you have to curiously ask for help almost shamelessly is one of the most underrated aspects on a different level i think but it's great that it comes from you so that so many of us can keep doing that as well and continue learning awesome Uh, i think you know just as also understanding that considering that you you know sold businesses in the past if you can maybe help us grasp any learnings for scale right like that's a different problem we've as an indian ecosystem we've now built successful products but at scale we're reaching that point where so many large institutions will get born and sas labs being one of them championing that cause if you have any thoughts on scaling yourself as an individual when the company scale will be very helpful sure i uh... Yeah, I, th- I think it's com- combined with how you built your business in the early days itself, the foundation of the business. I, you know, so if I have to start again, and I, I'm sure that I'll be building this. This is going to be a big business. I'll make sure uh, that I over invest in some of the functions that I that that every leader should. So, so one is uh, your data in general across you know, data, like any any data, right? So I think the really important to have the data platform in place. So it really helps you uh, to to scale your. risk taking as well i mean it's really important the the biggest insurance for a big company is to take risks because if you're not taking risks you you, you will die man i mean in the next couple of years and how to increase the size of your risk right it's really important to understand as a leader when you're scaling so in our r&d our budgets of r&d is going up really really well and that's a very conscious choice actually uh, because we really have to take bigger risks so if i have to go from let's say 20 million to 50 million next year I have to do something, not just the typical sales and whatever the same process. I have to do something changing. You have to go from twenty million to hundred million dollars in next eighteen months or twenty-four months. I'll have to do something, some big needle movers. So building that muscle for risk taking is, is the biggest sort of learning for me. Like as a as we as we scale the business. Second is uh, investing in coaching of your people and yourself. you know i think that that's that's again very sort of underrated the coaching whole coaching part is very underrated we normally expect that if i've i've hired someone even from a very big company with a lot of experience and they won't need any coaching uh, you are totally wrong there uh, because every company is different the reasons for failures are same but for success there are different reasons for success so every company is different right so you have to coach your folks that way 
any third third is just becoming that uh, being prote- protective of your people and your culture protecting your people from the outside uh, whatever wrong is going in the outside and protecting people from the internal politics i think that, that's really important like protecting your people and obviously becoming that culture sort of leader there make sure the culture sort of also scales if culture is not scaling again your company going to come to hold halt or going to go down so i mean a lot of a lot of things to take care of while you're scaling yeah no love it i think uh, very very practical again very interesting to hear for folks who are in that journey of figuring out skip so very very helpful awesome i think uh, i i was trying to think in my head you know what a fitting last question would be uh, but the way i look at it maybe going with a stereotypical one but if you had to go back and with all the you know wisdom you have of building companies now if you had to talk to yourself you know maybe the seventh class grade kid who started coding what would you tell him about company building right what would you tell him about being a founder as a lot of you know young founders or future founders listen to you if you had to you know maybe share two three final learnings of being a founder I think that would be a great summary of the entire conversation. Yeah, man, that's a that's a good one actually. Yeah, I, I think I'll I'll tell that I'll tell that uh, seven year seven class me that uh, always bootstrap the business when you're starting up. Like always, don't don't go for fund fundraises ever. Like in in your beginning stage, like always bootstrap. That's that's the right way. You'll do well if you bootstrap. Second is uh, hire a finance person as early as possible because we had a problem uh, switching from bootstrap to funded company. it's really have important to have good finance person good data person and a great hr as early as possible third is uh, pick a big big market which is growing correct perfect i think i love how granular you've been throughout the conversation and for that answer thank you so much gaurav for sharing your candid learnings so well with us i think i personally have in the last 60 minutes felt like closer to starting a saas business and i think that's the sentiment that if everybody can get i think that'll be lovely thank you so so much for your time i absolutely loved the conversation and i hope you did as well absolutely thanks man thanks so much awesome with that we come to the end of this conversation thank you so much for tuning in to the episode i really hope you enjoyed it as much as i did if you're finding value with the podcast do follow it on the audio streaming platform of your choice drop in a review and subscribe to our whatsapp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox thanks again i will see you next week for another episode till then i hope you record if you never try you'll never know stay tuned and keep building